2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about some sponsors who are making today's show possible. First up, our friends at Mubi. I really like Mubi. It's a streaming service, but it's not like the other streaming services. There's only 30 movies at a time. They handpick, curate gems of films, and you can choose. You don't have to spend all that time surfing around and searching and never finding anything to watch. With Mubi, everything has been handpicked by actual people with actual good taste. You can try it free for 30 days at Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash long form. Again, that's Mubi.com slash long form for a free 30-day trial. Our show is also brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace has saved my life uh, many times, mainly two, actually, when I actually really needed websites uh, and I was coming up against it and I don't know how to code anything and I needed a website that looked professional. These were for companies, full-on businesses, and uh, Squarespace just makes it so easy to put up your website, whether it's a uh, portfolio for your work or a blog or your podcast or your new business, which really needs a website. Squarespace is the easiest, best way to do it. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. And again, you don't need to know any code. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code LONGFORM to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thank you, Squarespace. Here is the program. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Hey, gentlemen, hello. Evan, wearing the uh, Long Form Podcast t-shirt. Yeah, Max, that, Max said it was like wearing the band's t-shirt That's a concert. That's a, um, that's a test pressing. That's uh, <laughs> that's the only only known incarnation of that t-shirt, at least in that size, I think. I never got a real one. There aren't, there aren't any real ones. Someday we will sell t-shirts for All this right. podcast to our listeners. All right, if you would like to get a t-shirt for this podcast, I'm not actually shilling right now since I don't have anything to sell. Bug us that will encourage us to print these t-shirts. It looks adorable on Evan. The only way we will ever have long-form podcast swag is if you guilt trip Aaron into making that website. I think part of the problem was that I ordered a bunch uh, a bunch of different sizes, including like baby and dog sizes. And the only ones that people seemed really excited about were the baby and dog ones. So uh, I didn't reorder the t-shirt ones. Uh, who's on the show this week, though? This week on the show, uh, Zoe Chase. Zoe is a reporter and a producer at This American Life. Before that, she was at Planet Money. And uh, for the last couple of years, she has been covering the rise of Donald Trump and the far right in America. Uh, she is one of my favorites, and I was real excited to have her on. So this uh, this is kind of a rain date. This uh, interview was originally supposed to happen live at the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. What happened? Uh, what happened was I, uh, I, I, I got injured. Yeah. I had a serious eye got, issue. Got poked in the eye. <laughs> yeah, I got my eye got all fucked up and I uh, ended up in the hospital the day of this live show. And uh, I, I think I've told you guys both this. I quite nearly went blind. I yeah. came very close to going blind. And uh, so I could not do this live show, but we'd sold all these tickets and Zoe had flown all the way to Chicago. And so I called up uh, Brian Reed, the host of S-Town, who works at This American Life with Zoe. And he very graciously took my place. And the two of them talked and the whole day, like that Sunday, 
I couldn't see anything, so I hadn't looked at my phone or anything. I was just in the hospital alone in Chicago, sad man, maybe going blind. And then on Monday morning, I could see again, and I looked at my phone, and I searched Twitter to see like what people had been saying about the show. And it was just this string of tweets of people being like, this is so amazing. Brian Reed is here. Like <laughs> Over and over again, people just being like, thank God, Max is in the hospital nearly blind. And I just want to tell those people, I- I'm right here. I could see it all. It, it, it hurt. There's also an episode with Brian Reed if you want to uh, if you want to see Max uh, interviewing both of those people. But I look forward to this uh, Zoe Chase uh, interview. We should maybe we should just do a Brian Reed interviews Brian Reed type episode. <laughs> yes. Well, thank thank you to Brian Reed for uh, saving my ass and injuring my ego. Uh, if you are looking to injure some egos, why not start a email newsletter? Mailchimp makes it so easy. They're our sponsor. Thanks, Mailchimp. And now here's Max with Zoe Chase. I'm not trying to be a a person out in the world right now. Like, I don't want people to know that much about me or, like, what my opinion is about something. Because of the reporting you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Well, good thing we're not allowed uh, to have, like, a long uh, recorded conversation (laughs) about about your life and work. I know. I know. It's weird. I don't really know why I'm doing this. It's because it's, like, it's an honor. You're doing me a favor. (laughs) You're doing me a favor. That is what the story is. Okay. It's the second time you're doing me a favor. That's right. Because you also <laughs> flew to Chicago because I asked you to fly to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were going to do this as a live show, and then um, I came I came down with a freak eye injury. Dude, you almost lost an eye. I it almost was, lost an eye. It was wild. It was really extreme. I couldn't be mad about it. <laughs> I looked for the opportunity <laughs> to Did you? be mad, but you I was like, be- I can't. Like, I can't be. This dude is like in the hospital, wondering whether he's going to have an eye tomorrow. That's I, terrible. I'm sorry, Max. I was mostly thinking about uh, how I'd let you down. Aww. I was very, I felt very, very bad that you had come all the way to Chicago and then uh, I had to go to the hospital. Chicago is a great city. I know. And then you fucking Brian stepped in. Yeah. And I was like way better. And uh, mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if you heard about this S-Town. That <laughs> yeah. was a big deal for people. Yeah. <laughs> when Brian Reed got on stage with me, I was like, that's right. I'm here with Brian Reed and I <laughs> hang out with him all the time. <laughs> um, okay. Well, what do you feel comfortable sharing about uh, like how you got your start in radio? Where did you come from? Why, why uh, is this what you do with your life? Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a really long time because I just went to college and I didn't do a lot of studying. And I didn't figure it out. And I should have. But then what happened was like I graduated from college because college ends and I didn't know how to, I just didn't know what to do. And then this really traumatic thing happened four months after I graduated from college, which was that my dad died really suddenly. So I kind of lost all my bearings at once and I just like had no idea what to do. I had no idea what to do. And, you know, but you have to make money. Right. So I applied for Philadelphia teaching fellows and I was just living in Philadelphia and I was trying to teach high school math, which I'm not good at at all. And it was I was a really bad teacher. So I was like one of those people that kind of felt like I have potential to be good at something, but it's not playing out right now. (laughs) And um, what made you a bad teacher? I just like, well, first of all, I like didn't understand the material very well. So <laughs> was, let's start there. I was terrible at math. I wasn't good at math and I was teaching it in environmental science, which I also just kind of didn't care about. And I just, I wasn't good at the like lesson planning. Like literally, I really liked being with the students and I liked talking to them and being around them, but I didn't like having to plan the lesson. I had a hard time focusing on it and just making it. You know, so you just kind of like winged it most days. No, I mean, I would, I would do it, but I would do it bad. It was a bad plan because it wasn't thoughtful. <laughs> you know, it just was bad. <laughs> I remember this one time I was trying to explain something about graphing something on like a, you know, one of those like projectors. You have the like shiny clear sheet, and you're like writing with one of those markers, and it's projected up. And I looked up and I saw this like huge plastic bag out the window. And I was like, Ugh! it like really scared me. It was like flying by. And one of my students was like, ah, and like <laughs> ran at me and like grabbed me because like she was scared because I was scared. And I was like, that was awesome. Like that was so funny. 
that's all I care about that happens. <laughs> like it just, it's like I was just not interested in the fact of teaching or something. I was bad at it, and that was not a good service to my students at all. <laughs> and um, and plus, I was like really miserable, you know, because my dad had died. And so, um, but what ended up happening was um, I lived in this little attic, kind of like a really small apartment in Philadelphia for five hundred dollars. And there was no TV or anything. And Hannah Jaffe Walt, who was a friend of mine from Oberlin, actually, because we went to Oberlin together, she was already kind of getting into radio. And she gave me a couple of CDs of, like, great radio to listen to because I was an unhappy person. And she thought it would be a helpful thing for me to listen to these stories that she liked. And... That was how this type of radio, longer storytelling radio, was so small then. It could, like, fit on a couple of CDs. Mm -hmm. There were, like, a couple This American Life stories. There was Joe Richmond's radio diaries, teenage diaries, which are my favorite of his. There was Jay Allison and this documentary he did, My So-Called Lungs, about a kid with cystic fibrosis. There was a piece by Jad. So it was before Radiolab. And I don't really remember the piece, but it was about a garbage dump. And... um. They were amazing, and I listened to them while I was lesson planning, and I was like, that is better than this. <laughs> and then and I was like, well, how do, how do I get more of these? And Hannah was like, thisamericanlife.org. You know what I mean? Like, literally. So, And this was all while I was lesson planning in this tiny apartment by myself, just miserable. I was listening to these radio stories, and I just I realized I was just so much more interested and like alive just listening to them than I was doing my very difficult job that I was doing very badly. And I just thought, oh, well, how do you how do you do that? How do you get into radio? And then once I had that question, I could figure that out and go do it. But it took me a really long time to even have the wherewithal to have the question. Why did it take so long? Because I was so sad. It was hard to think straight. You know, it was hard to do anything because my dad was really a person that, I don't know, like I followed, he guided me, like he helped me figure out what I was doing, not even explicitly, but kind of implicitly by him living his life and me wanting to live a life like him. And then when he disappeared, it just felt like my thoughts were like molasses. You know, I just couldn't figure things out very well. It would take a really long time between the grieving and the lack of direction that came from losing him so suddenly and at that moment, it just felt like it was hard for things to break through into my head. It was hard to figure things out. Something about the radio stories broke through into my head. Like that was a real, I think, process of, you know, coming to the end of a certain part of the grieving process and getting back interested in other things. Something about the radio stories, I think, provided um, like a road out, a way out. What do you think it was? Well, I mean, radio is kind of, it's a movie in your head, you know, like it's a very visual thing. It's a transporting thing when it's done well. And it's, it's louder than your thoughts, you know? It was both of those things. Like it would just take me out of the place that I was where I was lost and couldn't figure things out. And it was a kind of presentation of a whole, a whole other person's perspective, a whole other person's world, and even the voice of the people in the stories, like Ira Glass and Sarah Vowell and Jonathan Goldstein. I liked them. And they, they had a very personal way of telling the story to you so that you kind of felt like you're there with them. Like it's less lonely. It's literally just less lonely to have them there. And that felt really good. I really appreciated that. It was kind of audacious when I think about how helpful the radio was that I thought like, oh, I can go be part of that. But it was just one of those things where you're just looking for, well, what am I interested in? What I'm interested in is listening to the radio people. Were people in your life not able to do that for you? No, I had this, like, circle of friends that were, like, big part of my life. And they kind of held me up through that time and my sisters also. But they couldn't do the thing that my dad had done, which was a sort of, like, over here, Zoe, you know? Like, they couldn't do that. They could do, like, drowning out your thoughts, giving you new experiences, like, distracting you, loving you 
taking you places. I'm like very uh, dependent on my friends still. They're the sort of family that was created with my friends after my dad died is a very big part of my life. But they couldn't point in a direction. They were also 22. And they were also like, what the fuck? <laughs> You know, they had also gone to Oberlin and didn't know what to do with their lives. And my best friend, Lindsay, I moved to Philly because I could afford it and some of my best friends were there. Um, And I was trying to figure things out. And, you know, like I had this one best friend, Lindsay, who's still my best friend, and she lived down the street and we just had no idea what we were doing. She wasn't grieving, but she was lost. Mm -hmm. And she was working at Starbucks and we would go... We, but like before her shift at Starbucks, I wasn't doing anything. I was I was a waitress. I had a lot of different jobs. But like we would go to this coffee shop together and drink iced coffee and just look at Craigslist because that was kind of all there was. And it was like we didn't have wire, you know, Wi-Fi in our own houses because it was like that. So you have to go to the coffee shop to like look at Craigslist. And just we would talk about like what are we going to do? do with our lives like what's going to be our career <laughs> like is it here on craigslist <laughs> you know <laughs> and now Lindsay's a really successful immigration lawyer good for Lindsay. yeah i'm a radio reporter but you just need you need a comrade in those times but it's also helpful to have like a mentor yeah i miss that but i got that when i went to npr i mean how did you get there how do you get like hired at npr you get an internship <laughs> There's no, I don't know. There's, I mean, that's how. That's it. That's it. I don't know if it's still like this, but they had a very sort of efficient pipeline of interns coming into NPR, getting trained, becoming production assistants, basically temping at NPR for years and years and years, like not getting hired. So there's definitely a way to get in the building, but it was difficult to actually get hired and paid as an employee. How'd you do that? So I came in as an intern and... I just was like, oh, I can't. I got to stay here. This is like, this is going to save me. I was really desperate. Like it came from a place of desperation where you kind of look at the lay of the land and you're like, okay, I'm going to strategize my way through this, you know, obstacle course or whatever of, of like trying to stick around at NPR. And what it was was when you are at NPR, there's a million different, not a million, but there's like a bunch of different news shows and they all have little parts. And when you start, you work on one little part. And the better you get at working as a producer at NPR, you get to do more and more parts of what the show, of how to make one of these news shows, All Things Considered or Morning Edition. And I was working at WeSat, which is Weekend Edition Saturday at the time with Scott Simon. And what I would do is I just looked at, okay, what do all the producers do here? I'm going to do exactly that. I'm going to do exactly what they do, even if that's not my job, so that I can learn all the parts of the job that I'm going to need to know if they're ever going to keep me around. So, you know, like I would pitch stories every week and the stories were always bad. They were always terrible. But at least, you know, I was doing the action of pitching, which is part of the job of being a producer. You know, they would be pitches like there's a tourism industry in Afghanistan. Like it's just, <laughs> it's just so dumb. And then, you know, if people listen to, to NPR and they hear those conversations with the host and the guest, those are usually, you know, 15 minutes and the producer cuts them down to, you know, about six. And so I would do that. I would do that. And I would do that. But they couldn't air. They were terrible. Like I wasn't like cutting your, them right. Your edits weren't good enough. My edits weren't good enough. Like I, didn't, I just couldn't cut the two way. You know what I mean? Like meaning like I didn't exactly understand the narrative of an interview enough to be able to cut it so that it would make sense Mm -hmm. you know you have to cut out like seven minutes and yet have it sound seamless and that's like a skill but so what i would do is i would just follow whoever whatever producer was doing that i would cut it myself and then i would have this other producer listen to it and tell me what to do and tell me what to do so none of it was airing that what i was doing but i was acting as though i was making stuff to air was it hard at all to like uh, ask for that favor (sighs) yeah but I'm I'm really good at asking for help. <laughs> I'm good at asking for help. That's a skill that I have. That's important to be able to do that. I didn't know that I was developing that skill so much, but I try to make it seem like I'm not like causing a problem for you by you helping me. We're making the whole product better because once you teach me this, I'm going to be able to do the thing. I have a way of asking for help that I think empowers people to think that they can be helpful. It's like um, helping you with solving a problem for them. Mm-hmm. And were you at, at that 
point like were you all in were you like i have found my thing Mm -hmm. this is my thing Mm -hmm. i'm gonna make this thing work there was no like grass is greener i could be doing something else no which is so weird because i'm such an ambivalent and indecisive person i don't know why i've never thought oh i should do something that's not radio once i found it it just felt like this is my salvation i'm just gonna do this it's gonna be okay and that probably has to do with it's like when you're in a place like NPR and you can see all these other people that like have made their livelihoods on radio. I don't know. You just it seems possible. You could just be here with all these cool people, <laughs> you know, and like I just I really like I'm telling you, I didn't want to I didn't want to go out into the world and be like out lost in the cold again. I just mm-hmm. wanted to stay here with these people. Uh, now you are a very successful radio producer <laughs> so t- at the moment. Currently. Right now. And it feels tenuous? Mm-hmm. Come on. Yeah. I had a dream just two nights ago that I lost my job. I'm really scared that I'm going to lose my job. I don't understand how people are not afraid of that. I respect it and am envious of that feeling like, oh, I'm okay, I have a job. But I don't feel that way. What did you do in the dream that caused you to lose your job? I don't know. I couldn't get a hold of Ira to ask him. It was just like I was out. Like you just showed up, it's like a pink slip on your desk? No, it was like... I don't remember the process of it, but I was back at Planet Money, which is uh, an NPR news program about economics that I left to go to This American Life, which was a great experience being at Planet Money. But I was kind of like, what am I doing here? And like, I don't know a lot of the new people at Planet Money. You know, like, I don't know this producer. And I yelled at the producer and then I got reprimanded by the management at NPR, which is going through some challenges. And like, I'm just always afraid that I'm going to lose my job. And I even was in the dream starting to, in the process of getting fired from Planet Money. Like that was the next thing <laughs> that was went about that far? to happen, you know? For I would have all... just gone backwards through my whole career and gotten fired from each of the things oh. is what was happening. Zoe, that sounds, uh, that sounds like a terrible dream. That's my life. <laughs> <laughs> then I would have been graduating from high school. Miserable. <laughs> Lost. Yeah. It was just, I think it really, like, it was a traumatic time, that feeling of like, what am I doing? I'm not doing anything. Yeah, it seems like it's, it looms pretty large for you yeah. at time. Yeah, I think that's why I'm still afraid of losing my job, because what if that all happens again? That would be so scary for me. Yeah. I don't think you're going to lose your job. I hope not. Hey, I'm going to put things with Zoe on hold for a second, tell you a little bit about the sponsors who are making today's show possible. First up, Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience. They've got three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential. Casper mattresses, they're uh, perfectly designed. They'll soothe and cradle your natural geometry. My natural geometry is all uh, fucked up. I've got a real bad back. And those Casper mattresses, they just feel great. Everything, you wake up in the morning and I spring to life off of my Casper mattress. They've got a breathable design that helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night, and it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that-size box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. The best part, the absolute best part, is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-a-trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Here's how to do it. Start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get 50 bucks off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash longform and using longform at checkout. Again, that's casper.com slash longform. Offer code longform for 50 bucks off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions, they apply. Show's also sponsored by Squarespace. Are you ready to start your new business? Why wait until the new year to set your plans in action? The future is coming. Make it brighter with Squarespace. Squarespace has beautiful templates created by world-class designers. And Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. I have turned some ideas into new and unique websites using Squarespace. Like I was telling you before, I was behind the gun several times, needed a website at the last minute, and Squarespace made it so easy to build something that looked professional, like I'd spent all this time and knew what the hell I'm doing, which I do not. I don't know anything about code, and you don't need to know anything about code either. 
everything with Squarespace. It works. It's all drag and drop. Uh, you can showcase your work, blog, or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. If you have a question, you probably won't. But if you do, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support is there to help. A dream is just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. Make it a reality with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code LONGFORM to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com, offer code LONGFORM. Now let's get back to Zoe. I want to talk to you for the show for a long time because I, I really like the radio stories that you tell. But then Thanks. in the last, what, like year and a half? Yeah, two years. You've been covering politics. Uh-huh. And as far as I can tell, you had not covered politics before. No, that's true. Is that your idea? Were you assigned? What happened was in the beginning of This American Life, I was really lost again. Uh, like, I mean, I was getting paid, so that was good. But I didn't really know what stories to do. This American Life is really a big, open kind of palette. And you're supposed to be able to bring, I think, like, just your own equipment. You know what I mean? Like, your own skill set and interest to make a, a really nice thing. And I didn't really know how to do that. And I was at the Christmas, the first Christmas party of the show, which always ends up being pretty drunk. And um, I know now, but at the time I didn't. Anyway, Ira was kind of drunk. He doesn't remember this happening. But he said, he sort of turned around to me, I remember, and said, like, how's it going? How are you liking it? You know, because I had just been there for six months or so. And I said to him, I think I should have stayed at NPR. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he was like, Was this a dream where why? you lost no. your job? <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I know. I like talked about the dream in the same sense that I talk about my job now because I feel like it's that realistic. But no, and I I, said, I think I should have stayed at NPR. And Ira was like, why? And I was like, because I want to cover the election. I want to cover Donald Trump. And he was like, you can do that here. And I was like, how do you do that? And it was just because... I mean, Trump was like the crazy. I had never seen something like that. Right, and that's like twenty. Crazy. That's like December twenty fifteen. Trump. Mm-hmm. That's so like he had leading just... in the polls. Trump, but no one believes it's going to stick. Trump. Exactly. But you're like, why is this guy so popular? Who just announced a Muslim ban? That was when we a total and complete shutdown of all Muslims coming to the United States. That was December twenty fifteen, and I just had no idea. But I knew that if I were at NPR, they would be making me cover the news and at this american life they didn't make you do anything in particular you know anyway so i said to ira like i just want to do trump i don't know what to do but like look at this guy and i was like you can do that here and then it was two weeks later or something he turned to me and he was like do you want to go do some of the trump stuff and i was like what is that (laughs) you know but i was um, sort of obsessively following the news and there was South Carolina primary was coming up and I just had a terrible story idea which was such a basic kind of news reporter question story idea. It's like a de- great story if you read it in Politico but it's not a good This American Life story which is like did Trump have any ground game, right? Like was there any field organizing happening for Trump which I really wanted to know but it's not a good story for this American life. And so I was saying to Ira, well, I could go find that out before the South Carolina primary. And he was like, how about you go and look for like a conflict between two people who care about each other? And I was like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) But I mean, he was right. That's, That's what a story is. And the Republican Party was already was clear getting torn apart in a kind of family drama type of way. Mm -hmm. And we didn't quite spell it out like that, but it was like, what about somebody who's really into Jeb Bush and then somebody who's really into Trump and, you know, their brothers or what, you know, it was, it was like something like that. And I was like, I don't know. But I went to South Carolina and started talking to Trump supporters. And then I found the thing Ira had said. I found the very personal conflict that had to do with Donald Trump. And then I did a story about it and I was like, okay, I can stay at this American life. This is it. This is what I want. I need you to walk me through that process a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So you like land in, you know, Charleston or Columbia or wherever you land. Myrtle Beach. Myrtle Beach. Mm-hmm. And you've got like 
your Zoom and some microphones? <laughs> Are you alone? Morant? No, I had a producer. Um, she was a fellow at the show at the time, which is kind of like an intern, but like more than that. And she's really smart. She's still at This American Life, and she's awesome. And what we first did was we went to this biker rally, and we were talking to all these different Trump supporters. And I remember... But you hadn't done any political reporting. No, but I had done news reporting. So I was thinking of it as a news story. Like, you can go out... I can go out and get Vox. I can go out and ask people what they think about a thing. And the other thing I had done is I had cast around for characters a lot. So... I knew what good tape looked like. I knew what a good character looked like. I knew how to ask people questions about a thing that was going on in that moment on tape. But I didn't I didn't know more than that. Those mm-hmm. are basic radio reporter skills that I had. You know? Like, yeah. those were the things I knew. Um, and Trump was the thing going on. So it's like, why are you into Trump? You know? Just ask them. And I didn't really find me and Lily. We talked to a lot of people. It was a great scene couldn't quite find story, you know? I could have filed a news spot about it for NPR. But then I was calling around the way you do when you're trying to, like, find a story or, or like, basically just find somebody to interview about the thing that maybe is going to lead you to something that's actually going to be a story. I called this local radio show host, this guy Tony Beam, and he just was really connected into politics and locally in his area of South Carolina. And he was like, oh, my God, Trump. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, I don't know. Like, I run this evangelical Christian show, and all of my listeners are calling in and saying that they're supporting Trump. Even this one listener who's been with me forever, and I don't even know, like, what – this is not an evangelical candidate. Our candidate is Ted Cruz. This doesn't make sense. Like, he was really agitated and upset. Mm-hmm. And I was immediately like, oh, like, you're – the person because you're in a you're in a conflict about this and he was a stunning person to interview one of those people that can just tell you an anecdote and immediately tell you what it means I've never interviewed somebody that talented at answering questions in my life <laughs> um, but but he was having this conflict with this one listener of his Barry and we did a story about that, and it was like it was it was perfectly timed. It was the South Carolina primary. Trump won by a lot. It was confusing. Why did the evangelical vote break for Trump? And it just it was so satisfying. It was like I had an answer to this question that was happening in the news, but I also had these like real feelings that people were really having about what was going on with the presidential election. And I just was so addicted to it after that. I was like, oh, people, like, I am going to have an insight into what's happening in the news about the thing that I'm most fascinated about in the news, which is the rise of Donald Trump. And then what do you do to follow up? Like, what's the next question you want to answer? Yeah, that was tough. I never. I mean, at that point, you were like, this is what I'm doing. I'm on this Trump shit. Yeah. And that was okay. I don't know. Was it okay? It was what I was doing. I didn't really know that I was going to keep doing that, I think. I think I didn't really know until Trump won the primary. And then you're like, this is a very historic moment. This Mm -hmm. thing that's happening in America is strange. And so it's okay to keep documenting it because it's this American life. Like, you you can just keep documenting it. (laughs) I think that's what happened. But a lot of times, like, I just don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I've been asking the question, how come Donald Trump is the president for two years now? Before he was the president, it was like, how come he might be? Mm -hmm. You know, how did that happen? That's surprising to me. And I've been doing the same story over and over again. And that I think that's that's turning into a, a problem for me. But at the time, there were still a lot of room to explore that question. Like literally, Ira was like, what makes a voter vote the way they vote? Like, <laughs> I never do stories really that I just come up with all by myself. It's always through the process of a conversation happening at work about the thing that I'm interested in. And then if someone else at work is interested in it, then we're talking about it. And through that, you, you have a question and then a story then you start searching for a story that's maybe going to help you explore that question. And I had a guy that Lily had found, the producer I was working with, who was really right in the middle of forming his identity around politics. And so we followed 
So I followed him and I did a story about him and that answered that part of the question. That's Alex? Mm-hmm. And he's uh, 16, 17? 18. 18. Yeah, he was, um, he was the head of a local sort of Students for Trump chapter at his high school. And he was just like the weirdest high schooler I'd ever met. And this is like another question I had listening to that story. It's like, A, how do you find Alex? Mm-hmm. But then B, when do you know that Alex is someone you're going to spend a bunch of time with? And then when do you know that there's a story in that? It's the tape. So the thing with Alex was immediately I was like, oh, he's good. He's a good talker. I don't know what the story is. So I was writing to Brian Reed, my editor, sort of, here's this guy who's saying all this stuff and it's very compelling, but I don't I don't know what the story is. But that's, I mean, it's the tape. Like, that's how you know that you should keep following, that you should keep trying to find something here. There's something that here, there, there's building blocks that, are going to maybe make this work. It's the mm-hmm. tape. But, yeah, with Alex, I formed a theory about him. This is the deal with Alex. He supported Trump because he thought Trump supported gay marriage, and it just didn't make any sense because Trump just hadn't said anything about gay marriage one way or the, or the other. But then, you know, he sort of was dropping these clues that, like, his parents were big Cruz supporters, and... Cruz was really anti-gay marriage, obviously, and Alex was like, I would vote for Bernie Sanders over Ted Cruz if Ted Cruz becomes the nominee because that's how committed I am to gay marriage. And I was like, what the hell? I mean, he was clearly gay, but uh, but that doesn't mean that gay marriage has to be his number one issue. And gay marriage also had been decided by the courts already this past year. Like, it was not an issue of the campaign. And that was just one of those cases where you're talking to someone and you're talking to someone and you're talking to somebody and finally you find the story, you know, days and days and and lots of tape in, you finally find the story. And the story with Alex was that it was kind of a, a way of rebelling against his parents who were pretty homophobic and had really put Alex through a lot when they figured out he was gay, like a lot of hardship, and yet not not becoming someone so strange and alien to his parents that he would be, you know, totally like alone kind of in his house. And Trump was this like weird, happy medium. Mm. And so I thought that was the story. And I was really relieved that I had found it. But then Trump comes out and is like, whatever, I don't like gay marriage. I forget exactly what he said. He was like, never mind, gays, no. I forget exactly how it went. But I had to go back and talk to Alex about it, you know, because I was like, well, now what are you going to do? The whole story felt like a fallacy. And that felt bad. But what ended up happening was Alex just showed me the way Trump can make you feel so powerful when you're not very powerful, when you're in a position that you don't feel powerful, which for Alex was like being a high school gay kid. I realized, oh, like a lot of the Trump supporters right now, they want more power. Whatever that means, they feel like they don't have enough. And that's like an interesting kind of contingent that's going to cut across a lot of different demographics, mm-hmm. that feeling of like not having enough, wanting more. It's, it's not a specific demographic thing, and I didn't really see that until Alex. And then that became the story. Like that story was just making itself as it was going along. And that only happens when you're in a situation that's like so profoundly interesting that every turn that it takes is the story and making the story better. And that's what it was like when Trump was running for president. Have you always been interested in politics? I was a history major. I was I was always really into history, um, and I still am. So I didn't really know, like, what does it mean to be into politics exactly? Like, for I mean, example... Did you find politics interesting before Trump? But, like, what's politics? You know, like, I liked history, so... I like surprising stories with interesting people, you know, so so something like with economics, I had to cover economics for a little while. I don't know anything about economics uh, or I. Yeah, sorry. I, I just really don't. <laughs> I didn't until I met Adam Davidson and he like helped me a, a whole bunch. Um, but but when I came into Planet Money, I didn't know anything about economics, but I like storytelling and that exists within economics. And I sort of feel like that exists within politics. There's certain things that I always feel dumb that I don't know. It's the same thing that happened with economics at first. Like you don't understand certain terms and you're sort of behind and it feels bad. You know, like at first when you come into economics reporting, if you aren't someone who has studied economics, which I hadn't, 
and you don't know what's significant about somebody being into Keynes or someone being into Hayek, like that feels really bad. And you have to know that. There's certain little things you have to know like that. But it's the same with politics. Like it's been confusing and embarrassing to me how legislation gets passed. It's it's like actually quite difficult to figure out. I don't know. Like I wasn't anti-politics before. I just like the stories with the interesting characters. And politics has that. Part of the reason I want to talk to you was those stories and they're coming out. Like I, I too was fascinated and confused, super confused. And there was like a tone in those stories. It was like you were talking to people in this way that felt familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Or at least like close to the way that I would have aspired to talk to them. Oh. And I think that's kind of what I'm interested in. It's like, how do you approach finding a story like that where you're some combination of excited and confused? Like, how do you find that tone? Because at the same time, this election was historic in all these ways. One of them was that it was so loud. Yeah. And it felt to me like uh, the, the stuff you were doing was the opposite of that. Huh. Yeah, well, because I only had one question, like there was so much amazing political reporting going on at the time. I wasn't out there trying to discover a piece of new information and give it to people. Like that's a totally different thing. And I loved that. I still love that experience of what reporters are doing right now. I'm very addicted to it as a consumer, as a news consumer. But that wasn't my mandate. So my mandate wasn't any different from what it had ever been as a, as a radio reporter. You know, you have to find people that you're going to want to listen to for whatever reason, you know, just that are somehow either likable or relatable or interesting, like not interesting. Obviously, everyone's everyone's kind of interesting, but intriguing in a certain way. You're like, what's up with that person? Yeah. You know, people that you'd like to hear more from for whatever reason. That's, you always have to have that in radio. You have to have them doing a thing that's interesting. Um, and surprising. And in this case, because there was a crazy election going on, they often were because they were engaged in this bigger action that was already interesting and, and provocative and strange. So it wasn't that hard to figure out how to approach those stories. It was just hard to find stories that you felt like would offer maybe an insight that wasn't already out there because mm-hmm. so many people were obsessed with the election. Is that just about finding those people or is it about how you talk to them? I think that it's about having the right question that you're going after so that you're going to be able to provide some piece of insight, something that feels new. I was trying to think about it today, actually, because I thought you might ask me about what I thought about the sort of political reporting at the moment, um, which I think is extraordinary. And I went back and I looked at some of the articles that I felt like kind of shaped what I was doing with my reporting and thinking about last year. And there was this one profile that Julia Yaffe did. She wrote this amazing, amazing profile of Stephen Miller. I think it was like really the first one. And Stephen Miller um, is a is he's now the head of the Domestic Policy Council in the Trump White House. He, you know, was the author of the executive order on the travel ban. Anyway, we could talk about what he's doing now, but the point is back then, nobody knew what he was doing. Nobody knew who he was, and Julia knew, and she wrote a story about him, and she just answered a million questions I had. Where is Trump getting his ideas? Like, wh- where is this platform coming from? Like, I'm not familiar personally with this platform. Mm. There were all these sort of non-Republican opinions that were coming out of Trump that I didn't understand where they were coming from and how they fit together as one coherent thing. And then I read the profile of Stephen Miller and I did understand all of it. Mm. Through reading Julia's profile that she wrote about him, it was clear to me where this whole articulation around slowing down immigration, stopping immigration, kind of demonizing Mexico, um, demonizing Muslims, where that was coming from as like a full articulation of a platform. But what I didn't understand was like, why is this appealing to so many people? Mm -hmm. I didn't know this was such a popular idea. I just didn't know. And I wanted to know about it. And that question came via reading Julia's Mm -hmm. profile of Stephen Miller. And then does that lead into like that piece on St. Cloud? Yeah. 
Exactly. Then I went to the Republican convention not long after that. And my question there was, can I find a story where somebody is going to help me understand how immigration became this central issue of this Republican campaign that I did not know was going to have the kind of traction that that it did. And I talked to like so many people at the Republican convention and I had a lot of trouble finding a story. But then I found I found Bobby, um, this one guy from Minnesota there who was a delegate, and he had the same question. But the difference was he had the question about people in his town already that were already really opposed to refugee resettlement and any kind of immigration that was coming into their area. And so when I had him asking the question, that's what you need. You don't just want the reporter asking the question. You want the reporter to make their question relevant by finding someone else mm-hmm. who has that question. How quickly does that process work for you? So you're like at the RNC and you're running around and talking to all these people. Like how quickly when you're having those conversations, you're like, okay, this one's not, this person's not going to work. And how quickly once you met Bobby, were you like, this is the thing I was looking for? Pretty quickly. Because people will launch into these kind of like spiels about politics in general, these like talking points. And what you always want is for someone to be speaking personally. So if they don't really have the ability to speak personally, you can kind of tell pretty quickly. And that happened at the convention. You know, you ask people like, you know, like I do that sometimes where I'll go into situations and I'm casting around for somebody And so I'm asking pretty much the same question over and over again, which definitely last year was always like, what do you think of Trump? But I'm trying to remember exactly what my question was about immigration. I think I literally would say, like, do you have you been talking about immigration with other Republicans that, you know, because that can be helpful because then they're immediately going to tell you it like as a conversation rather than kind of like, you know, like a like, what do you think about immigration type of thing? And with Bobby, like, he just was, like, already kind of, like, upset because he was really upset about the wall. He didn't want a wall. Mm -hmm. He was sitting with his friend who really did. That's what you want. You want an angsty person in conflict that's going to tell you about their feelings Mm -hmm. or at least emote in some sort of a way. And I just, you can pick that stuff up pretty quickly. Yeah, I guess this is, like, maybe too meta a question. But I just wonder whether it's, like, a checklist or just something you kind of, like, know in your gut. Um, I think you just know it. It's like speed dating. You know, you're running around talking to people quickly, like as just to size them up. Can you talk? Are you funny? Are you self-deprecating? One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was kind of like how you make those stories feel alive. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe you're answering that now, which is like you're speed dating and casting around for someone who has some actual genuine personal Uh, conflict. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm revealing too much almost about about the way we find stories thinking about looking for someone with personal conflict rather than kind of like stumbling along to it. But in a story, there's a question and you're looking for an answer. So like naturally, the person that's going to embody that question is going to be in conflict. So it is a place that you start. Right. But it's a... the the part that I'm interested in mm-hmm. is these people also being vessels for your own questions. Yeah. Right. So like you're trying to figure out this historic moment in America mm-hmm. and you have all your own questions about it. Mm-hmm. It's not a world that you're like you've operated in right. much. Right. And so you both need to find someone who has that internal conflict themselves, but also that conflict must in some level on some level like answer your own question. Well, I think it's that you want it to be a piece of useful reporting. It's not It's not just that they're a vessel for your own personal question. You're trying to tell a story about why this campaign is developing the way it is. And the reason that you're pursuing it in that certain way that you're pursuing it is because you've been researching it, mm-hmm. you know, and you know what's out there and understood and what isn't. And you're trying... You're trying to explain it. You're trying to explain it. And it's it's made up of people. Like, it didn't happen without them. You know, like, it didn't happen without, like, all these people in, in Bobby's town being, like, really mad about refugee resettlement. So, 
you do the reporting to figure out what the question is, and then you find the people that are going to help you understand why this thing is happening in this particular way. You now seem very like concerned <laughs> that you've given away some state secret. <laughs> I think it's probably super basic reporting <laughs> that I'm over-explaining and overthinking. Was there a point in the process when you started to feel like you had a handle on some of those things that had been confusing about where that support was coming from? Yeah, I definitely feel like I understand much better now the immigration part of the campaign and then of the policymaking that's happened afterwards. But I still think of Trump as enough of an anomaly in American history that I still find it kind of confusing. Like, I'm somebody who thinks that what's happened before is generally what happens. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that there's not going to be some, there's not going to be a black swan event. So I, I find this still like enough of a weird thing that's happened, just historically speaking, that I'm still kind of confused about it. <laughs> do you and I'm fe- still curious about it. Do you feel like you're more or less confused than, than the people around you? Like, are you an expert on this now? No. I'm definitely not an expert. I think I'm more confused, actually. I think that other people kind of have quicker explanations as to how this happened. Like, I don't feel like I have a a quick explanation as to why we're at this point. Like, I feel less satisfied with a neat explanation. Hmm. I'm still looking for one. Are you still looking? Yeah. You've also been spending a lot of time uh, in the Capitol. (laughs) I was. I don't know. Is your time there done? I hope not, but basically I was trying to do this long story about Jeff Flake, who I got kind of obsessed with. But basically, yeah, I was really excited. It took me a long time to get what I wanted from the Jeff Flake team, which was like you need to – I basically was like you have to let me shower with him if that's what I want. Like you just have – like I need so much access to this dude because – he is a congressperson, and people in Congress don't give good tape. They do not give good tape. And so I am going to need to spend, like, so much time with him in order to get, like, one tiny thing of him that's sincere. It's just true with all of them, I think. Is that your definition of good tape? Sincere? Yeah, like a real thing that somebody's saying and not a prescripted thing that they've already thought of and they mm-hmm. don't that's not sort of coming from a genuine place. How do you convince them to let you take a shower with Jeff Flake? Well, I promised not to air it until after the Republican primary. (laughs) That's basically what it was. And I was like, okay, fine. Like, I'll do that deal with you. I'm in a position where I can do a deal like that because I work at a show that's constantly changing, like, what show is going to be next and what's the deadline. And it's very sort of story-centric um, like I realized like I was uncomfortable with it at first, but then I was like, oh, I actually can do that deal and maybe the tape will be better. Mm. I'll follow him through his primary. And my whole question for him is like, literally, are you talking to anyone but yourself? Like, do you represent anyone? Does anybody think about the country, about the world, about money, about immigration, <laughs> about anything the way you think, Jeff Flake? Or are you like talking to yourself here? And so I wanted to see him kind of figure out through the campaign whether or not he was actually speaking for anyone in Arizona. And as I was talking to his team, it started to make more sense that I would do it this way, that we would make a deal like that. And I was like, I don't want to see the long Jeff Flake profile in The New Yorker when I'm in the middle of this thing. I'm like, you can't do that to me. But um, but there, a big Jeff Flake profile came out in Time today, Time Magazine, because uh, our deal is off, obviously. But that took like two months of like just talking with them. Mm-hmm. And his book came out, and I was so stressed about that. All this stuff. Finally, I got to be with him, and we started our little process. When you like start hanging out with Jeff Flake, how long does it take for you to be yourself with him? Well, it was a brief, like I will say it was abbreviated. It wasn't the total process. For me, I was, yeah, I was still getting comfortable with trying to be around a senator. I hadn't spent much time around them. It was kind of scary. It's scary to ask a, a senator a hard question if you're not used to it. But what I was really focused on was trying to get him to break and talk like a regular person. How do you do that? 
you try to think of questions that are going to surprise him that he hasn't answered before. You act, I think, almost overly sincere with them in order to model the behavior that you want them to respond to you with. And uh, you just keep asking personal questions over and over again. And so it was like even some of the tape that I was getting with Flake at first was just it wasn't even useful tape at all. It was just like we're chatting, you know. Mm -hmm. But then there were some times where I wasn't given that much time with him. And so I felt like I would have to like rush into like a harder thing to deal with, which is like like Bob Corker's retiring. Um, Don't you feel upset and alone now? And he just like wasn't ready to like talk like that. And he'd be like, Bob Corker's a you know, valuable senator. I'm sorry to see him go. And I'm like, but you're upset. You know, like, because I had like five minutes with him, you know, and I want him, I want to make a moment of him being upset that this other, you know, guy in the Senate that's kind of like on his team and and sees things the way he does um, is retiring. Anyway, but I feel like Jeff Flake didn't totally understand what I was trying to do because if he had, he would have given me a heads up that he was going to retire. I wouldn't (laughs) have had to like get a text message from someone while I was like in the bathroom at the Capitol and like run... (laughs) Back to the hall, you know, the Senate gallery, I was like, what is happening? Like, I was just, I was so sad. I think I was probably mostly sad for my story, mm-hmm. my big documentary that I was planning. I, I knew it was over, like, right away because it would have no stakes. But I also felt like you're trying to infuse the character that you're following with dramatic emotion because that's what makes a good story. And I knew that there there was a kind of there was a big disappointment for Jeff Flake personally that he was doing this. Like he was quitting. And it felt tragic. It felt like tragic in a like romantic Shakespeare type way <laughs> to me. And I got kind of swept up in that and sad about that in a real way. You know, and all the reporters were, like, running to him, the Capitol reporters, and they all had, like, the right questions for him. And I was just like, are you okay, Senator? Really? <laughs> yeah. That, that was your question, yeah. like, on the record? Uh, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> what do you say? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good, Zoe. But basically, I guess what I'm the, – the bigger thing is you asked me – you were saying, oh, you've been spending time in the Capitol. And um, the truth is that – it's really hard to do this American life kind of story uh, on people in Congress. It's like maybe impossible. Why? I don't. I don't think it's impossible. Impossible. Maybe I just wasn't good enough at it yet. I'm trying, but the tape is just not. They're not reflective. They're not being honest. They're they're politicking, and that's obvious. But you know, you can do. I mean, you could do a big investigative story. That would be good. You know, there's plenty of room for that. But what I was looking for was the personal experience of being in Congress during the Trump administration. Like, I felt like that was an interesting place to be. But I wasn't going to get honest reflections of it on the record. I really did try. I'm going to still try. But that, I felt like I ran up against a wall and I haven't I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, you were saying with Flake, like, you were trying to make a moment. Mm-hmm. And I just want to sit in that thing for a second that you're saying now about it being impossible to get those people who are the most like they have the most to lose with being honest and the least to gain yeah of like anyone in the world almost Mm -hmm. i've heard you do that with people on the radio for so long which is like this this is the thing i wanted to talk to you about Mm. and one thing i haven't known is how much of that is kind of like manufactured and tactics and how much of that is the way that you are in the world. I mean, I think a third level of a thing that you're doing when you're asking questions for a radio story is you're also performing for the audience. You're trying to get the listener to hear what's happening in the story the way that you want them to. It's really like a piece of writing, the question asking. So... There's another level to it, which is that one. How big is the gap between like that person that you are in the air and the person that you are in the rest of your life? <sighs> I don't know what the answer is to that because I don't know what is the person that I am on the air. 
I don't feel like it's a separate person. So... An acceptable answer to that question is there is no gap. Yeah. But that's probably not true, right? Like, that can't be true that there's no gap. It's probably not true. (laughs) So, (laughs) but it's hard for me to say how much Mm -hmm. of the difference there is. Certainly, you know, like I'm saying, there's a level of performance where I'm trying to get tape that I'm not doing when I'm not recording. Do you ask, like, random people that you meet out in the world, like, Mm -hmm. uh, personal or difficult questions? Sometimes, yeah. But not just, like, as a habit. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Only if there's something that I really want to know. Like, I like when people kind of allude to the fact that uh, it's hard to be married or something. Like I wanted, I want to know all about that, so I'll ask about that. Um, I'm always interested in how people think about relationships and talk about their relationships, but I won't just ask them like a difficult question, um, just because I'm like a radio reporter. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it, there's, there's, ac- I'm actually curious about something. In this whole time that you've been uh, reporting on his effect on the country and the world in this moment, have you wanted to interview Donald Trump? Yeah, but I'm not. Um, that's really hard to interview somebody like that who's that powerful and consequential. I mean, it would take weeks and weeks of preparation, and I feel like I could only ask like one or two questions or something. Like it just, it, it's too, it's too important. And the thing that that I've been interested in a lot of times is what's the feeling that this person is having in this position? And that's not something you would ask this president about because there's too many other important questions to ask him. Mm-hmm. And so it just it, it's like I don't like have a request in to the White House to talk to Donald Trump. I don't have a question for him. If you got that shot, though. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you just, like, walk down the street and, like, you know, found a piece of paper that was like, this is a one-time you get to interview Donald Trump mm-hmm. card. What do you think you'd ask him? It's really hard. You know, there's a part of me that is the kind of radio performer part that would just ask him something so basic and unimportant, such as, like, is that your real hair and how is it? blonde still you're an old man there's that part of me that would ask that question (laughs) and then there's another part of me that would be like you know how do you feel do you feel kind of good that David Duke liked so much what you said yesterday on Twitter you know there's part of me that would want to ask him that but I wouldn't be getting it he wouldn't give me a real answer, and I wouldn't. It wouldn't. I wouldn't be getting at the whole thing. It's better to leave that stuff to the people like Maggie Haberman, obviously, the New York Times, who have all the context for where he is. Like, I wouldn't want to be thrown into a situation like that. I want somebody who's really good at that to do that. But the idea of uh, doing the thing that you are really good at, which is like asking people about their <laughs> their feelings. <laughs> you I don't even want. know. Am I good at that? I just like, I don't know if I'm good at that. I don't, I don't really, I mean, it's such a huge part of making radio to, to do the interview. Like you're making the tape that way. But I don't think of myself as a good interviewer because I think it's the hardest part of making radio. It's so difficult that mostly what I think about when I think about asking questions is, ways that I could do it better like I don't think like oh I always have a way that I do it I'm like here's how I wish I were doing it (laughs) you know what I mean I have no idea what you're talking about (laughs) okay I'm sorry (laughs) yeah right I got one more feelings questions then I'll let you go oh okay so you started right you started this thing like you were in this uh kind of lost place and heard this American life and you're like I want to do that Mm -hmm. and now you are currently doing that yeah that's weird yeah how does that feel? I think it should feel better than it does. I really do because it's it's cool that I managed to achieve that. You know, I wanted to I wanted to work with Ira. I work with Ira. Like that's really cool for me. But I just I have so much anxiety about what the next story is going to be and how the other stories have been previous to this one. That hasn't gone away. Like that's my approach. 
And that didn't go away just because I landed at This American Life. Like, the anxiety is all still there. I thought maybe that would have changed somewhat once you achieve the thing that you were setting out to do. But it hasn't. Like, I'm still, I still think making radio is really hard. I still really, I'm stressed out about it. I still am nervous that I'm going to get fired. So I wish I could sometimes just take a little more sort of comfort in it. Like, hey, relax. Like, you wanted to be at This American Life, you got there. Like, that's cool. Like, relax and enjoy that. But that's not really journalism. You know what I mean? Like, you can't just be at This American Life and not do any stories. You don't stop just because you got there. You get there and then you have to do really good stories. And that's still really stressful. I, you know, it's it's probably pretty good, but I, I wish I could just feel a little better. <laughs> Do you think you will? I don't know. I mean, like I had this experience last February where I did this one story about this radio host and his listener. And that felt like a really good story. Like I, I love that story that I did. I only feel that way about that story. And I had a real feeling of like achievement around it and satisfaction. And it lasted about two weeks. <laughs> I had to do another story after that. <laughs> and so maybe if I do another story like that one that feels as satisfying as that, maybe it'll last longer. Like three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. No, maybe that'll just feel, that'll carry me a little further. Mm-hmm. You know? I feel like you can, I feel like you got three weeks in you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. That's a real uh, vote of confidence, and uh, I'll take it until I get there. Thank you, Zoe. Thanks, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Courtney Harrell, and our intern was Angela Velez. Thanks to them, and thanks so much to Zoe Chase. Uh, not only did she come to the studio, she flew to Chicago and, uh, I ended up in the hospital and she came back. Um, you can find all of Zoe's work at thisamericanlife.org. We'll see you next week. Wait, also, before we go, our sponsors, I should thank them. MailChimp, Casper, Squarespace, and Mubi. If you are looking for a streaming service that is actually curated, you should try Mubi, M-U-B-I dot com slash long form. There's only 30 movies on there. They're all handpicked by people with great taste. So you can spend your time actually watching instead of searching for something to watch. Thanks to them. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.